I'm Tracy Sable tonight on EWTN News Nightly, promoting peace. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrives in the Middle East for the fifth time as he works to free hostages taken by Hamas. We have the latest. A step forward. After months of negotiations, the Senate releases a package regarding border security and foreign aid. But will it survive the House? We're on Capitol Hill. First of its kind. How the governor of Connecticut plans on erasing over $600 million in medical debt. We have analysis. And Italian and Irish culture unite in honor of one faithful saint. We have a report from EWTN Vatican correspondent Colin Flynn. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Agatha. Our top story tonight, President Joe Biden is returning to the White House after holding campaign events in California and Nevada. He is now facing national security threats from the crisis at the southern border to attacks against U.S. forces overseas and concerns over a widening war in the Middle East. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, after a weekend of retaliatory strikes, the United States is warning Iran and the militias at arms and funds that the U.S. will conduct more attacks if American forces in the Mideast continue to be targeted. President Joe Biden's top diplomat, Antony Blinken, arriving in Saudi Arabia on his fifth visit to the region since the outbreak of the war in Gaza, hoping to press ahead with a potential ceasefire deal and post-war planning while tamping down regional tensions. At the U.S. State Department, more details of the secretary's visit. We're going to continue to work uh, with the Israelis to end this conflict uh, as soon as possible and over the course of its duration continue to push for the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. While Israel presses ahead with its offensive against the terror group Hamas, the United States and Britain have struck Iran-backed armed groups in Syria, Iraq and Yemen. We believe that these were credible targets and picked in a way to minimize and avoid civilian casualties. The United States will respond when our forces are attacked and we will respond uh, with strength and in a sustained way uh, when American casualties are incurred. And while Sullivan says America will hit back, he also warns the U.S. has already suffered a significant number of American casualties and deaths in recent Mideast conflicts. And the United States also is not looking for a wider war in the Middle East. We are not looking to take the United States to war. Meanwhile, on the U.S. southern border, a group of former FBI agents warned in a recently released letter the United States is facing a new and imminent danger because military-aged men from across the globe Many from countries or regions not friendly to the United States are landing in waves on our soil by the thousands, not by splashing ashore from a ship or parachuting from a plane, but rather by foot across a border. They say it could lead to an attack in America like the one Israel faced on October 7th. And earlier today, President Biden called on Congress to immediately pass the bipartisan national security bill that would include border funding. The president, while in Nevada, told reporters there's not enough agents, not enough judges, and that help is needed. My next speaker, Johnson, is pay attention to what the Senate's doing. we got a bipartisan deal. So you're going to see the detail of it this week. It'll be introduced on Wednesday. The White House also says the bill would help Ukraine and Israel defend themselves against tyranny 
and terrorism. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. And here now with more with the situation in the Middle East is Eric Buer, retired United States Marine Corps colonel and author of the book Ghosts of Baghdad. Colonel Buer, great to be with you again. Uh, your thoughts on the United States stra strategy so far. Do you think this bombing campaign will be effective and act as a deterrent? Well, I believe it will. I mean, it's they, they, they took some time to think through it, military planners. Uh, clearly put some uh, some effort into this. We sent, sent a lot of messages. You know, initially, uh, we weren't sure exactly how we were going to strike targets. Uh, the, the fact that we launched B-1s from the United States was a message in itself, saying we can, we can hit you truly at our time and place in choosing. Uh, and we didn't use any naval power uh, as, as it relates to ships, as it relates to submarines with cruise missiles. And we also told the Tehran again that we can we can strike their proxies anytime we want. So I, I think that message was was good. I think that message message is effective now. Uh, what it'll be like in a week is is something we're gonna have to wait on. Yeah, uh, just last evening there was a drone attack in Syria uh, at a military base where some U.S. troops are stationed. No U.S. service members were killed, but a number of Kurdish allies soldiers did lose their lives. Uh, meantime, the Biden administration says. They don't want war or they don't want to escalate things. But it does seem like that's where this is heading. So, Colonel, can a wider conflict, can it be avoided here? I think it can. I, I, I don't think the Iranians really have the ability to widen the war much more than they have. I mean, they have to use proxies. Their air force uh, is decimated. It's, it's, a, it's a 1970s air force. They really don't have any armored formations or traditional military a power that we we could easily target, so I think they're still counting on their proxies, and it doesn't. The term you know war for us means a, a mobilization of of, of, land, of land troops that is, and, and and preparing some type of formal assault. And I don't think that's going to happen with the Iranians. The Iranians just need to be uh, consistently reminded that their uh, their desires to in their you know expand their influence in the region is going to be minimized. Uh, it's not just the United States and the UK. It's also the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Jordanians and the Egyptians uh, who all uh, have something to lose with a uh, regionally empowered Iran. And speaking of Iran, uh, as you know, uh, they have claimed that it wasn't involved in that drone strike that killed three U.S. troops and isn't involved in the decision, uh, decision making, that is, of those militant groups. Your thoughts? I mean, is that really the case? It can't be the case. Uh, the Quds forces, their, their special forces of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, that has their fingerprints all over it. Um, but those those proxies don't really have the the skills and the training, and the logistics to fly what are very sophisticated drones, and not just fly them, but employ them effectively. So uh, Tehran's fingerprints are all over this, and to believe otherwise would just uh, would, would really be naive. Colonel, we're almost out of time here, but quickly, uh, before I let you go, should we be concerned uh, that this conflict may spread here to the United States with potential terror attacks on U.S. soil, especially, you know, as we're seeing so many military-age men coming over the U.S. southern border? It should concern us all. The southern border is uh, it's, it's, it's the biggest black eye this administration may have. It's, uh, it's certainly a national security issue. We, we have to take care of it. We have to secure the border. Um, we have to know who's coming in this country. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there that, that do us harm, and, uh, and I suspect uh, more than a few have made it across the southern border. All right. We're going to leave it right there. Colonel, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.
President Biden easily won the South Carolina Democratic primary this weekend. The president won all 55 of the state's delegates as he pushes ahead in his reelection bid, fending off both of his challengers, Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips. He also won the New Hampshire primary via a run-in effort last month. South Carolina was pivotal in Biden's 2020 election campaign. After months of secret negotiations, the Senate's bipartisan border security and foreign aid package is released. The $118 billion measure rewrites key parts of immigration law. Several Republican senators are lining up against it, and Speaker Mike Johnson is already saying the bill is dead on arrival in the House. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales joins us now with the latest. Eric? Good evening, Tracy. The border bill slashes the number of migrants eligible for asylum and alters how those claims are processed. Republican senators are praising the efforts of GOP chief negotiator of the deal, Senator James Langford. But in the same breath, they say that they will vote no on the measure because it doesn't go far enough. Senator, tell me why this bill is such a big win for Republicans. It's a significant win in many ways because it changes the way that currently the border is being handled. It has an emergency authority that would kick in immediately that would change the paradigm from thousands of people in every day to thousands of people actually being deported every day. He adds it will help to identify real asylum seekers. Senator Langford tells me Catholic church leaders support it. Catholics all over that I meet are for love and for justice. We're trying to thread that needle to say, hey, this is not about an individual person, but we do want to be able to care for that individual, but also to be able to have real justice in our nation as well. The bill provides $20 billion for border security. It ends catch and release and expands detention capacity for families. It would curtail the asylum process by raising standards. It also provides $650 million to expand the border wall. But one issue with GOP House members, mandatory shutdown of the border only after there's been an average of more than 5,000 crossing attempts per day over a week. Speaker Mike Johnson wrote on X, quote, I've seen enough. This bill is even worse than we expected. It will be dead on arrival. The top Senate leaders say they want to pass it. The senators have to drown out the noise of politics and politicians who tell them not to vote for this bill for political purposes. We all know it's the right thing to do. We all know it's very much needed. We all know that a lot of the future of America depends on this. I still favor trying to make law when you can. And I do think that what Senator Langford and his team are going to produce is an improvement over current law. The nation's angry about the economy, they're angry about the border, they're angry about what's going on in culture, they're just angry. At some point we've got to determine I'm going to move from angry to being productive. A vote to debate the bill will take place on Wednesday and it's not a sure thing that that will even pass. The package will also provide $14 billion in aid to Israel and give Ukraine another $60 billion in emergency funding. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN, News Nightly. So far, no reaction from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops to the new border bill. However, U.S. bishops have stated that they oppose enforcement-only immigration policies and support true comprehensive immigration reform where migrants are able to work and earn a path to citizenship. Well, an intense, long-lasting atmospheric river is moving across California, impacting millions of people. The storm is already causing widespread power outages and bringing heavy rain, and there is still a threat for mudslides and life-threatening flooding. Avon Rodriguez reports on the latest. Millions of people across Southern California remain under a high risk of excessive rainfall. Early Monday morning, crews were busy rescuing people across the state trapped by flooded waters. 
Nicholas Pasculi, spokesperson for Monterey County, says even though they have high capacity in their reservoirs, they'll be keeping an eye on water levels. The biggest thing we're concerned about is watching the river levels, of course, um, because oftentimes the rivers don't reflect the amount of, of water that's come down until the water comes off the mountains and the, and the watershed. Parts of Los Angeles, where the heaviest rain is located, are forecast to receive close to half a year's worth of rain by Tuesday. By the end of the storm, parts of Southern California could see between 4 to 8 inches of rain, with higher elevations seeing 8 to 16 inches, and a considerable amount of snow in mountains and foothills. Officials warning for the potential for life-threatening flash flooding and landslides in central and southern parts of the state. Some people who were preparing for this storm felt there was only so much they could do. We can be prepared as we want, or like the county could do whatever they want, but like Mother Nature takes its course. The storm is expected to pound Southern California through Monday night. We could use a break from Mother Nature, that's for sure. I'm Ivan Rodriguez reporting. And South America towns in central Chile are slowly recovering after suffering through three days of deadly forest fires. Officials say more than 100 people have died, hundreds more are missing, and at least 3,000 homes have burned to the ground. First responders were able to put out the fires this morning. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including Helping Hand. A new program in Connecticut is set to help residents offset sky-high medical bills and a worrying update on the health of King Charles III. Welcome back. Earlier today, Buckingham Palace made a shocking announcement. King Charles III has been diagnosed with cancer and is receiving treatment. All this less than a year since his coronation. The announcement did not include what type of cancer, only to say that it was found during the monarch's recent procedure to treat an enlarged prostate. The 75-year-old king has stepped away from public duties for the time being, but will still undertake state business. A Connecticut is set to become the first state to eliminate medical debt for its residents. Governor Ned Lamont announced that up to $1 billion will be erased as the state works with a nonprofit that buys medical debt and eliminates it at a reduced cost. Households of a family of four making up to $156,000 a year or whose medical debt equates to 5% or more of their annual income will be eligible. 250,000 residents are expected to benefit. And here now to discuss is Lewis Brown, executive director of the Christ Medicus Foundation. Lewis, always great to have you on. Uh, first, great to be with you. Your thoughts on this kind of program. I mean, what more can you tell us about this? Sure. So, uh, Governor Ned Lamont, governor of Connecticut, announced a proposal, a legislative proposal, to cancel the debt of around 2 million uh, Connecticut residents. Uh, they believe that that would wipe out about $20 billion in medical debt using $20 million of COVID money that they received from the American Rescue Plan. Uh, what the proposal does is essentially uh, sells the medical debt of Connecticut residents to a nonprofit, which then turns around and negotiates that medical debt down with uh, hospitals directly. And Lewis, this seems like a good idea, you know, to give people some, you know, financial relief here. Um, but who is ultimately on the hook for this bill? 
Sure. I think in the short term, it is appropriate for the government to advance the common good by providing medical relief uh, and really financial relief where it can to struggling families that are struggling uh, to pay for their financial costs. Everyone's going to be happy uh, about that, and that's needed. But I think the longer-term problem is that we persist as a country in having health care costs that are simply too high. This doesn't immediately address the problem. There's also, I fear, unintended consequences of passing on these costs uh, ultimately to hospitals, to insurers uh, over time. But in the short term, these families are going to be happy to have uh, the medical relief uh, that they feel that they need and particularly the financial relief. Do you think that other states uh, may follow suit and do something similar? Yeah, clearly, in the research that I did, it looks like cities and some states around the country are looking at this, taking a serious look. Look like New York City, uh, New Jersey, uh, Ohio, uh, Cleveland, New uh, New Orleans, as well as Pittsburgh. They've been looking at it, and specifically in Ohio, was the city of Cleveland. They've been looking at doing this again. I think it is important for government uh, to have their people's best interest in mind and to use uh, tax dollars to turn it back to the people and provide some immediate relief to financial cost of health care that's too high. But it's not addressing the longer term issue of health care costs that are soaring with no end in sight. Yeah. And let's delve into that a little bit more, Lewis. I mean, kind of give us a, a, an idea. You mentioned some of the cities that are considering this program. How big of a problem is medical debt for people and what can be done for them? Yeah. Medical debt is one of the largest uh, forms of household debt in America. It may, in fact, actually be the largest. So it's a massive issue. But the the long-term problem that we have as a country is that we're not giving uh, financial resources and appropriate control and power to individuals, to families, to patients to make decisions about their health care, to really exercise appropriate control over their health care. That's number one. Number two is that we don't have enough competition in the marketplace. Uh, as government takes an increasingly larger role uh, in health care, we're using uh, the American tax dollar uh, to su- subsidize that, and it disincentivizes uh, health care insurers and hospitals uh, from having a real stake in driving costs down. What we need to do is drive costs down, increase competition, return appropriate control in health care to the individual, to the family, to the patient. Uh, that's where we need to go. Uh, again, short term, I think this is good. It helps families uh, that are in need of real financial relief. Uh, but over time, it's not addressing uh, the longer term problem of decreasing health care costs and having real choices, uh, real opportunities for the American people to control their health care. Okay. I would I would suggest that folks look at uh, the Galen Institute has done wonderful work on this. Grace Marie Turner has been amazing there. Uh, if you look at the healthy the healthcare choices proposal 2020, uh, that's a good start of where to go. All right, we're going to do that. Thank you so much, Lewis. Always appreciate your insights. Thank you. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, staying close to us, Pope Francis reminds the faithful that our Heavenly Father wants to help us at all times. Plus, why a fifth century saint from Ireland has a modern following. Reminds the faithful that God is always close to us. Dio sempre vicino a noi. At a Sunday address at the Vatican, the Holy Father says God is not detached, distant, or cold. Instead, He is filled with love 
and wants to be close to us and heal us. He even visits our homes and seeks to save us from every illness of body and spirit. Pope Francis also summed up God's attitude toward us in three words, closeness, compassion, and tenderness. A remarkable moment for Northern Ireland. The Protestant state now has a Catholic leader. Michelle O'Neill was named first minister after the government returned to work following a two-year boycott. This was an important day for nationalists who wish to unite with Ireland. O'Neill said that this was a historic day that represents a new dawn. Well, the church recently celebrated the feast of St. Bridget of Ireland and an event in Rome highlighted the Irish culture and heritage in connection with one of its saints. EWTN Vatican News correspondent Colin Flint has more. On an evening in Roma, at the Pontifical Irish College, a singer performs Oskilga in Irish. This is a unique event where Irish artists have come together to celebrate the patroness saint of Ireland, Saint Bridget, through music, poetry and art. Eve Parnell is one of the artists and one of the organisers of the event. Art and culture, I believe, is very important in the world and the influence of Saint Bridget, she was an educator. She uh, had a school of calligraphy. She encouraged many types of people, but she also encouraged artists. Victoria Johnson is a Grammy-nominated singer and songwriter who says she expresses her faith through her music. My faith really inspires um, a lot of my lyrics and as a person of faith, if we're given musical gifts or gifts in the arts, um, we're really to use them. Um, so that's what I try and do. Sail away, sail away, sail away, my the event to honour St. Bridget was supported by Culture Ireland and the Irish ambassador to Italy, Patricia O'Brien. This was a woman who developed a powerful voice, unusual for her time in the 5th century. She was a mentor, a negotiator and an advocate for the poor. Cuivine MacUmphrey is a poet from Dublin who read one of his pieces about the legend of St. Bridget's cloak covering acres of land where she would build her first monastery. And in the streaming darkness there, he saw behind coils a warrior braid of hair that fell in fiery heaps beneath my stamping feet. When you start to look at the cultural connections between Italy and Ireland, um, the points of contact are in their thousands. It's uh, incredible. Decreeing I might have the land I need. And that is the true story of my cloak. Father Paul Finnerty is the rector of the Irish College, facilitating this meeting of faith and the arts. They speak in theology about the relationship between faith and culture, so tonight is uh, the mingling of both faith and culture here uh, in an institution that dates back almost 400 years. A truly Irish way to celebrate an Irish saint. In Rome, Colm Flynn, EWTN News Nightly. A finally tonight, as Notre Dame Cathedral is being rebuilt in France, you could have an opportunity to build it 
Right in your own home, Lego has announced a more than 4,000-piece set. Based on the famous cathedral, it is the largest architecture set ever created by the company. The Notre Dame Lego is expected to hit shelves on June 1st. The set is being created despite the company's policy against making religious products. Pretty neat stuff. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.